0: Our good Lord and Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much that you have made yourself known to us. We pray that as we open up your word, that you'll be clearing our thoughts, clearing our minds, keep us free from distractions, and help us to learn more about you, to grow closer to you, and to reflect your glory on our front lines more and more. We pray this in your name. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Babylon. The year is around 605 BC. The northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen about 100 years before, and the southern kingdom was just about to follow suit. The people of God had been ruled by kings. They had enjoyed time in their land for about 400 years, but in that time the people continually forgot about Yahweh. They forgot about the Lord. They turned to idols. They turned to Baal worship, just like the original inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. They took for granted all the benefits that Yahweh had given them. And apart from a mini revival a few years before, the worship of the Lord according to the book of the law had been completely left behind. In fact, the book of the law was to be read and studied by kings and copied out by kings and lived out by kings, but it was dusty and hadn't seen the light of day for years. Apart from a few faithful people, the nation, God's special possession, had become largely spiritually dead. So, God sent prophets people to speak his word, to call people back into a relationship with him and warn them about the coming judgment. But the people would not listen. Isaiah was ignored. A Jeremiah's scrolls that he painstakingly wrote out were literally cut up and thrown into a fire. Ezekiel's efforts to use actions and to act out the judgment came on hard hearts. Stopped ears and darkened eyes. So then God's people, who were called to be his own, to reflect his glory in the world, to be holy, became no different to the other nations. And so, there was judgment. What we commonly call these days the exile is God's judgment on his people. These are the covenant curses that Israel signed up to right back in the days of Moses. In the closing chapters of Deuteronomy, after wandering around the desert, after being rescued from Egypt for 40 years... They're overlooking the promised land. Moses is giving them his final speech, his final words. He says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. So then how did we get into exile? Because the Israelites didn't choose life. They chose death and destruction. They worshipped other gods. They turned their hearts away. So then welcome to Babylon. The exile is just beginning. It's just a matter of years before the whole nation is raised to the ground and the temple is destroyed. It looks hopeless. It looks like God has forgotten his people, that they've been punished and just left to their own devices. To the outsider looking into the whole saga, it would have looked like Yahweh is weak. However, even though his people haven't been faithful to the covenant, God is faithful. God hasn't forgotten about them. He hasn't left them behind. He certainly isn't weak. Throughout these first six chapters of Daniel, we'll see how God is faithful to his people, how God is the supreme ruler, how God is at work even amidst the mess, how God humiliates the proud but uplifts the weak, how God works on the grand scale. But can also shout the mouths of individual lions. So then, in the knowledge that God is faithful and haven't forgotten about them, what does it look like to live as God's people in a foreign land? How are the people to live amongst the Babylonians, their captors? How are God's people to live under the pressure to conform to the pattern of the Babylonians? Well, through the events of Daniel and his mates Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, we'll see how they stood firm and lived amongst their captors. They lived faithfully to God and didn't compromise. Uh, they weren't angry, they weren't aggressive, but they were peaceful and went about their business serving God. And in these opening verses, today we see God's reign reign we see God's people in a foreign land. So firstly, God's reign. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Uh, We can probably let these words wash over us without full realisation of what has actually happened here. Uh, Judah's king was defeated. The dynasty was over. Uh, The treasures of the temple that were set apart for for the holy worship of a holy God were not only taken away, but were put into the use of the worship of a pagan God. The nation was humiliated. To the other nations, it looked like Yahweh was humiliated. But there are three words here which change the whole narrative. Three words that shapes the whole of the book in the time of exile. And they are, the Lord delivered. The Lord delivered. See, God hasn't been humiliated. God hasn't forgotten about his people. No, the Lord delivered. God is still the one who's calling the shots. God is the one who's still on the throne, even amongst the mess. God is still sovereign. And this is of first importance. If we forget this simple fact, we're going to forget so many simple things. If we forget that God is in control, our worldview and our confidence will be pulled apart like a thread in a tapestry. And these days, in 21st century Australia, we may not be in exile and living under the rule of oppressors, but we live in a world that is messy. We live in a world that is increasingly putting us under pressure. Under pressure to look more and more like the world under pressure for us to forget God and to forget who we are called to be. But the one simple fact that can give us hope, sanity, and steadfastness is that God is in control. No one and nothing can kick him off his throne. People can mock God. People may mock us. But God still reigns supreme over all. So Yahweh was the one who handed over Judah as judgment for their rebellion. Yahweh was the one who caused the temple articles to be taken away. He doesn't need to be worshipped with gold and silver and sacrifices, but in fullness and truth of heart. And ultimately, Yahweh was the one who sent his one and only Son to die the ultimate messy death and rose him with mighty power for us. God reigns, the Lord reigns, and he also has his people. Now in the sporting world, we've just had our fortnight of grand finals of the AFL and NRL. Uh, We've had the various awards ceremonies, and this makes me very excited. Not because I love winter sport, but because it means that cricket is just about to start. Uh, In 2008, India was touring Australia and they were playing the New Year's Test match in Sydney. I distinctly remember watching this. It was turning into a real nail-biter in the final innings until the closing final overs. India just had to last out a few overs until they got the draw. Australia had three wickets to take to get to the win. So it's the final over of the day. The ball gets handed to Michael Clark. Uh, Michael Clark isn't really known for his bowling, so it seemed like the draw was likely. However, that was until he took a wicket. And then he took another wicket. And then seemingly out of nowhere, he took another wicket and won the match for Australia. We had our unlikely person step up in the midst of a hopeless situation. Now, in the midst of a messy exile, God has his people right in the right place, in the right time, even in a hopeless situation. But unlike Michael Clark, their goal wasn't to win victory and to overthrow the Babylonian rule but to settle into the land and live faithfully for Yahweh in the midst of exile. And as we'll see throughout this series, they did a pretty good job. So verse 4, look with me. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men without any physical defect. Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. Well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. In verse 6, among those who were chosen, some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, before we move on, one thing that we need to see and that I want us to pick up on is that even though God's people rejected him, he didn't completely wipe them out. Even though they weren't and, and worshipped other gods and disobeyed the very first commandment, God still preserved his people. This is really quite remarkable. The descriptions that we get in the prophets about Israel going after other gods is like Israel being an unfaithful wife, paying other people to be with her. That's just the PG version. It's deplorable. It's heartbreaking. And yet God still loves his people with an everlasting loving kindness, covenant love. He preserves them. He disciplines them in exile out of love for them, but he doesn't destroy them. Not only that, but he promises that 70 years later, they'll return to the land And that many years later, the Messiah will come. So they are still God's people, even though they had rejected him. He still loves them, even though they rejected him. And they are told in the book of Jeremiah to settle in for the long haul, submit to the judgment, build houses, plant gardens, pray for the city on its behalf, seek its welfare, when the city goes well, it will go well for the people. So then back to Daniel. Now, these people that the king selects, the upper class elite, the handsome young men from Israel, were to settle in and serve God in that place. Now, specifically mentioned are four men. So what's in a name? Uh, Generally not an amazing amount, but these names are worth mentioning. Uh, We have Daniel. Daniel means God is my judge. We have Hananiah, which means Yahweh is gracious. We have Mishael, which means who belongs to God. We have Azariah, which means Yahweh is helped. Now, these men were probably only teenagers, probably just boys, around 16. We have no other background about them other than they were in nobility or royalty and that their parents could have been faithful Israelites giving them names such as these. These boys were taken from their hometowns, placed in a foreign land, and were pressured to conform to the Babylonian way of life. But they were God's people, called to be His, called not to compromise, called to reflect his glory and reign even in a foreign land. So look with me halfway through verse 4. He, uh, that is the chief of the court of officials of, of Babylon, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Now, this is actually quite smart of King Nebuchadnezzar. He took the influential people and the people with potential away to re-educate them, to train them up in all things Babylon. They were to master the arts and the literature, the language. And that probably would have encompassed all sorts of things, such as Babylonian religion, occult worship, their gods, and probably pagan magical arts they were the first to be enrolled in Babylonian culture 101. And there would have been pressure. Pressure to compromise on their own beliefs. They would have been encouraged or even forced to worship other gods and to make the exact same mistakes that led them to exile in the very first place. And also to encourage this, to make them assimilate into Babylonian culture They were given new names to reflect the Babylonian gods. They have Shadrach, which means servant of Uk; Meshach, I have become weak, and Abednego, servant of an ego or Nebo. The pagan culture was pressing in on them. It was clear that they weren't in Israel anymore. Life was different. Every move that they make was being watched. Every decision was being scrutinized. They were given plenty by the king as if to win them over and to lull them into a false sense of security. So then, what are they going to do? How are they going to live in this foreign land? Are they going to crack and and cave under pressure? Well, spoilers ahead, but this is what we'll see in the coming weeks. In verse 8, next week, we'll see that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and asked for permission not to. In the chapters following, we'll see that his mates, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar and were thrown into the fiery furnace. And Daniel refused to stop praying and giving thanks to the Lord, even if it meant going into the lion's den. But as they were faithful to God, God was faithful to them, protected them, and even promoted them in the king's service. And even more than that, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar comes to praise Yahweh. This is how the Israelites were to live in a foreign land, faithful to God as he has been faithful to them throughout generations. Now, I wonder if this is sounding a bit familiar. God's people being under pressure. The world urging God's people to conform. Uh, Luring Christians in with the world's bounty and riches and apparent goodness. At this side of the cross, in 21st-century Australia, we may not be in a politically foreign land, although some of us here are today, but we are aliens and exiles. Why? Because this isn't our home. We don't belong here. We don't belong to the world. We belong to Jesus. We belong to the life that is to come. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we have been redeemed and saved from this world for a relationship with him. We are God's special possession. We are a royal priesthood, a chosen people of God. We've been shown mercy. We've been brought from darkness into light. And so then Peter urges us in 1 Peter 2.11 that, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles To abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. See, we as God's people, as exiles here in 21st century Australia, are urged not to conform to the pattern of this world. Don't give in to pressure. But remember who we are as God's people. Remember our identity as God's people, saved by his grace, and live such good lives to him. So much so that when others look in, they may see God at work in us. And we serve him because he is a great, faithful God, who is with us in the mess of this world. He is sovereign and on the throne. And he orchestrated the greatest mess of all in the death of his son, Jesus Christ, for us on the cross to claim us as his own. He has us as his people in the right place, The right time to serve him, even though this isn't our eternal home. So, then, brothers and sisters, welcome to Babylon. Welcome to Australia. Welcome to Toowoomba. Welcome to Brisbane. Welcome to your front lines. It's messy it may seem like God is being pushed more and more out the door. It may seem like our positions and beliefs are being more and more ridiculed and pressured. Following him may cost us jobs, promotions. may even cost us some relationships. But take heart. Because in this world, on our front lines, wherever we are this week, in every hour of our lives, God reigns supreme. God has shown you mercy and called you to be his child. And God will come back and take you to be with him in our eternal home. But in the meantime, let's ask for God's help to live for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much. How you have called us to be your people. To be your chosen people. A royal priesthood. A people brought from light, brought from darkness to light. And Lord, help us this side of the cross and this side of eternity to live faithfully to you to live such good lives in our worlds that people see us, but ultimately see you, our good and gracious King, our King who will hold us fast, that whatever this world throws at us, that you will hold us fast, our gracious, good, faithful and sovereign King. We pray this in your name. Amen.